Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, for SB Live Sports. Today's... I'm really excited to, 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 to connect with our guest and talk about some of their experiences, some of the things they're up to now. I've, I've mentioned many times in, in this podcast some of the guys that I looked up to. He was one of them from the Portland area where I thought, hey, if he's going to make it, I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to work extremely hard. He had a much better career than I did. One of the greats from the Portland area, Terrell Brandon. Terrell. So good to see you again. It's been quite a while since we've connected. How's life? Life is good, man. Good seeing you, Dan, man. Everything's going pretty good here in Portland, man. Good to hear. I know you're probably dealing with all the rain, which means the Blazer season is upon us. College basketball, high school is right around the corner. I made the comment in the intro, uh, guys that I looked up to. In, in the big picture stuff, John Stockton, Mark Price, Rod Strickland were three-point guards across the country I looked up to. But then in the Portland area, I had two guys that I looked up to um, and yourself and Damon Stoudemire were those two guys. When you were growing up, give me a couple examples of guys from the Portland area that you grew up kind of really looking up to and then nationally maybe as well. Yeah, when I was growing up uh, as as a early, early young man, uh, Mr. Richard Washington was the one that they talked about a lot who, um, you know, the great uh, John Wooden came here to Portland and, and drafted our homeboy Wilder Benson High School back in the day. And so he was one that, uh, whose name who was ringing a lot. Um, you know, Mr. Amos Allen was another guy who was a, 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 a great legend in the park, you know, who, who played hard and, and uh, had the respect from everybody. Um, Tony Ross, who, uh, who went to Grant High School where I was at, who ended up signing with uh, San Diego State. And so it, we had a number of, of, of players around the neighborhood. And um, But you know how it is, Dan, when you're our height, you know, you really can't relate <laughs> to a lot of guys who are 6'3 and 6'4. So what I want to do is not, um, you know, not have a short man's complex and not want to fight all the time, but I want to, to try to, you know, establish my own identity and, uh, uh, and have people like you, and I appreciate it, but have people like you following my footsteps from a a, um, a little guy's perspective and not always from, you know, someone who's always 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, well, your game was about as smooth as anybody's game and that I've either played against or watched. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, nowadays kids don't spend a lot of time in the park uh, working on their skills, playing random one-on-one or pickup. It's a little bit more structured, and there's good and bad about that. But where did the smoothness in your game come from? I think just um, I kind of use my off-the-court 
personality on the court to try to uh, brainwash people a lot. <laughs> I think I used that to my advantage a lot of times when they thought that I was real mild mannered and laid back. And then uh, I'll take this jumper with you and then go about my business, you know. Um, but I think, think that being the smallest all the time gives you a, um, a different type of chip. Um, and then just when you work hard, Dan, as you know, when you work hard in the gym, you make things try to look easy. And uh, things weren't easy for me, you know, because I, I was always had that deficiency over my career of being the shortest. So I always had to shoot over guys that was bigger than, and, and bigger than me, taller than me, longer than me. But I just didn't use it as an excuse. And, um, but I worked hard at my, my, my mid-range game. And when I found out that my mid-range game was something that was a lost art, even when I was a kid, everybody wanted to shoot, you know, either layups or three-pointers, but that 10-foot jump shot was something that it was born to other people. And I used it to my advantage because I couldn't go to the basket a lot or they was gonna block my shot. So when I found out that that was what, um, that was good for me. I maintained it in high school, college, and the pros, and found out that for me, for me to stay in high school, college, and the pros, I have to keep my ten foot to seventeen foot range intact, and that's what I did. That's exactly one of the key traits of your game that I remember. It was your mid range. You were really good in pick and rolls. You were also really good in transition, kind of weaving in and out, and then finding an opportunity in that mid range. When you watch today's game, it's layups and space threes and deep threes. And I don't like comparing eras because the game always changes and at some point it'll switch back to post play. Um, who knows when, but it'll switch back. Do you like watching this era of basketball um, or do you prefer kind of that mix and match post game, mid range, a little bit of everything? I love the game now. I mean, I would love to, you know, you and I, we would have fits <laughs> with the no ch hand checking rule that they have now. You can't touch anybody, you know, it's just like a quarterback in football. They want you to throw for 350, 400 yards. And now with the no ch hand checking rule and the three point shot is just, you know, when I came into the league, you know, we was only averaging like maybe four or five three pointers as a team in 91 all across the board. And now, you know, guys are putting up, you know, 25 33 pointers per team you know so the game has changed a lot um the hand checking rule of everything was trap the pick and roll and rotate no matter who it was and then all of a sudden you know you have to show and, and, and come back and go underneath some players who you may not have the the, the, the three-point range or the mid-range the game has changed so much but i, I like both areas. i like all areas you know i, I grew up watching the 70s and 80s, you know, when everything was, was um, uh, you, you could, no flavor fouls, then, you know, you just go to the line and shoot free throws. And then I came in in 90, when, um, you know, the, sh the short shorts and we were still wearing boxes and they still had the old school mentality, but things start to change. The three point line came in, they start putting, um, you know, you remember Dan, uh, the, zone defense started to come into the NBA. So, so the, the game started to change a little bit as Isaiah and Maddie, all those guys started going out when I came in. And when we came in, the game started to change. And then look at it now. You know, you got Damon, Damian Lillard pulling up from half court and <laughs> he feel like it's a good shot. And he's confident that's going to go in. 
you know, if I would have did that under Coach Lenny Wilkins, I probably wouldn't have played for a month. <laughs> that is true. Like the the whole philosophy and the and and what is acceptable in the game changes, and it's due to personnel and, and style of the game as well as skills. But I want your take on on something real quick. You mentioned the hand check rule, and John Stockton and I have talked about this a number of times, and he's given me two names of guys that he had to go up against that literally he said you couldn't do anything with them uh, because of the hand check rule. They could push you anywhere on the court they want. Who would have been the guys that took advantage of that ability to hand check defensively more than anybody else in your eyes? Um, Off the top of my head, I would say uh, Derek Harper from the uh, Dallas Mavericks and uh, Alvin Robinson who's one of the strongest guards that I've ever played against in my life. I mean, those guys would actually grab your waist, right? And tell you where to go <laughs> and move you there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know what? I'm coming as a rookie and I'm, I'm looking at the referee and, and I'm like, you know, what's going on? And the referee tell me, come on, rook, get them off of you. <laughs> so I have to learn how to like actually smack guys on the wrist they get their hands off of me and the referees wasn't calling it either way. So I had to adjust to that from coming from the Pac-10 and, you know, we, we you know, the Pac-10, we want to score 80, 90 points. I go to the East Coast and they was like, oh, no, this is this is totally <laughs> different. man." That's funny because the two names that John brought up, one was Doc Rivers and the other one he said was Derek Harper. He said Derek Harper had the strongest hands, just like you were saying. He put them on your waist and he would steer where you were going to go as an offensive player. Yeah. And so you had to combat it by just be being elusive and being able to get to where you want before he could touch you. Otherwise it was done. It was a bad possession. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. So share with us a little bit about uh, your high school basketball career. So the first time I saw you play would have been Grant high school in the state tournament uh, at the Memorial Coliseum. Um, I was a young kid. I, I grew up in Portland, moved to Vancouver when I was second grade, but I would go to all the state tournaments. Tell us about the best memories that you have of competing in the state tournament in Oregon. I would say it started my sophomore year um, when I was when I got the opportunity to play varsity. I was so happy that I made the team, man. I was like, yeah, you know, back then, sophomores and freshmen, they didn't play varsity very much back then. So to get the opportunity to, to play varsity and to win a championship uh, so early in my career, I think that really helped me develop because of the confidence of winning a championship and being part of a great team. And then all of a sudden, Dan, you know how it is when you're you're high and I go back to the championship my junior year and I'm like, this is, this is real cool. And then we lose. <laughs> we get beat by, uh, by, by sunset. And so, uh, you know, that, that high and low, I think, always is going to help you competitive-wise. And thank God I had another year, my senior year, and was able to come back and win another championship. So, you know, to go to three straight championships and win two, you know, that's not too bad. Not at all. I know, um, you know, there's lots of talk about who the greatest high school player is out of the state of Oregon. You know, a lot of people mention yourself, Damon Stoudemire, uh, Richard Washington, who you mentioned, and Peyton Pritchard, who I believe won four, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there's been some great players that come out of that Portland area. 
you decided to stay home and play for the Oregon Ducks. You had to sit out your first year because of how all the eligibility rules were so different back then. Most kids in this day and age, if you say you got to sit out a year, they don't know what to do with themselves. You took that year and really prepared yourself. Uh, what was the decision like going to Oregon? And then how was that redshirt year, that preparation year for you to get you ready to just explode on the scene uh, when, when you're finally eligible? Yeah, great question. Uh, as a kid, um, I used to watch Raycom, which was KPTV Channel 12. And uh, they always would show the Oregon Duck games on Saturday. And so that's why I learned about who, you know, Ron Lee and Stan Love and um, Greg Ballard and all these great players from Oregon. And then eventually Anthony Taylor, the great Anthony Taylor came through. And so I would watch the highlights and I would see that yellow, and that green. I said, man, dad, I want to go there. That's, that's where I want to go. A lot of my friends, everybody want to leave the state. Everybody wants to leave home, leave mama's house, leave daddy's house and go be on their own. And uh, I want to break that mold and stay in the state. Um, but one thing about it is that I messed up. You know, I didn't pass the SAT. No matter that three point that I had, that don't count. People don't even hear that. All they hear is academically ineligible. And so that's the difference between red shirt and academically ineligible is because the next year I came in as a sophomore. You know, when you're red shirt, you get those four years of eligibility. And so that freshman year, it was totally, um, it's the first time I, I would say, Dan, I was a really a student athlete because I was under a zero restriction. Can't practice, I can't travel, uh, I can't be a part of any video sessions, I can't be a part of any team meetings. I have to sit behind the bench on home games and during practice, I had to sit in the stands. So it was just like having, um, I compare it to a dunce hat back in the day when we watched it in cartoons. Mm -hmm. I would put you in the corner and tell you to sit there. That's how it was for a whole year. I mean, study, only thing I can do is study hall and a pre-game meal. That's all I can do. And as soon as the meeting start, I had to go outside. So being an Oregon guy and being, uh, you know, representing the state and representing Portland, it was embarrassing, you know? But I wrote this, um, then uh, um, my boy J.J. Lincoln taught me how to use a computer, uh, a printer. And I put on my wall in my dorm next year. And I put it on my wall and I stared at it every day doing my homework. I would have the Oregon media guy. I said, I want to break every record that Anthony Taylor had. I want to break every record that Stan Love had. I want to break every record <laughs> that, that the guys before me, you know, and, and get this embarrassment out of me. And so when I came in my sophomore year, I, I was I was mentally and physically ready. Well, that's a, a tremendous learning opportunity if, if there's young kids listening to this, because many times you have a setback and, and you'll get frustrated and you'll dwell on it as opposed to figuring out how do I make myself better? How do I get ready for a comeback? And you obviously did that. Um, you had a tremendous two year career before you left early to the NBA. You left it early as an early entrant when that wasn't normal and it wasn't normal for a small guard like yourself what was the thought process like and how determined were you um to to make it work when you just said i'm gone i'm going to the nba 
Yeah, my dad, he, he called me up and had me come back home. And he, um, he gave me a piece of paper and he said, um, in front of my mother, and she, he said, write down the pros and cons. He said, if one outweigh the other, if, if the negatives outweigh the positive, boy, take your butt back to school. <laughs> and so I just started writing things down and he looked at it and he said, I'm not gonna make a decision for you. I want you to look at the list that you wrote and then you go from there. And um, I, I was proud to be, and at, at that time, U.S. of Oregon didn't know what it was like because I was the first you know, player to ever go pro uh, for going my senior year to go pro early. And so um, it, 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 was, it was a blessing that I was able to help the generation behind me show them how to do it. You know, having a press conference and, and, and we didn't know where we wanted to do it at. It was so many things going on into it. And then, of course, am I making the right decision? You know, um, being a Pac-10 player of the year, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. But then the projections, you know how projections are, Dan. Well, he's projected to be a late second round and uh, 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 early, uh, uh, late first round, late second round pick. And uh, I remember um, Coach Munson called uh, Marty Blake. And he was over to help the, uh, the, uh, the NBA, you know, the players uh, of draft. He was a director. And um, he said, Terrell, you know, if you come back next year, I think that you'll be all American and blah, blah, blah. And so I asked him a question. I said, Mr. Blake, I just want to ask you a question. Are there 60 guys in the nation better than me? The phone got quiet. <laughs> okay. Now I said, we came in seventh, eighth place in the, in the, in the Pac-10. The coaches named me the player of the year. Are you actually saying I should come back next year? The phone got quiet. I said, thank you very much, Mr. Blake. I, you take care. <laughs> and that was it because he, he couldn't say anything you know and so that, that was that, that was that was an ultimate compliment well that is, so much of that is is having faith in your own skills and your work ethic and your ability that you're going to be a successful pro you know i had a similar when i decided to transfer from uw which was a pac 10 pac 12 school which one of the reasons i went there is because of guys like you and uh, Damon Stoudemire, Jason Kidd, all the best point guards on the West Coast were going Pac-10 schools at the time. And I felt I needed to be at that level. Um, but it was a difficult decision and I had to bet on myself when I decided to transfer. Um, going to transfer to GU, I was able to play in an old gym, which they've now made a new gym. You played in maybe the best gym I've ever been in in my life, Matt Court. You probably don't know this, but when I was a high school kid, I wanted to go to Oregon to be a duck. I wanted, I, I wanted to follow in your footsteps, Kenya Wilkins footsteps. And I wanted to play on Matt court because it was amazing. They wouldn't recruit me. So I would, didn't have a chance to go there, but they now built their own great facility. Matt court or the new facility, which one are you taking? I'm taking Matt court. <laughs> I tell Dana Altman all the time. That's my friend. And, and I just saw him a couple months ago and, and being Oregon, but, um, it's just like you say, you know, the mystique of Matt Court was so prestigious. I remember uh, playing against Tracy Murray, and he's with the Washington Bullets at the time, and I'm with Cleveland Cavaliers. And we're saying what's up, and the first thing he said was, man, I show Mitch playing y'all, man, the Pac-10, man, at Matt Court. And here we are in the NBA in the league, you know, but just that 
that mustache that 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 when we only had you know eight nine thousand people but they were there they would be outside in tents you know for especially big games like you know arizona stanford usc you know you know teams like that uh but they was consistent you know the the, the scoreboard be rocking back and forth and you have to look up and make sure that you know it's on them those little wires back in the day yeah so we didn't make sure that we want to be under it just in case something happened and um i remember the the even the the uh the rims will be shaking sometimes when, when, the, when the opponents be trying to shoot a free throw because our crowd was so into it and so on the court so we definitely had the home court advantage and and and, and i i personally i took full advantage of it. Well, I'm, I'm sure you did. I mean, uh, for opponents, it was interesting because our locker room would be downstairs and you didn't notice it till after the game. But after the game, when, when you need to take a shower, there was no warm water. It was always cold water and it was downstairs. It was dark. The lights would be flickering because the student section and everybody would be going uh, nuts above and, and the floor would be shaking. Uh, those bring back some great memories. Um, when you look back now at your playing career in the NBA, you played against some of the greats of all time. The NBA Top 75 list came out yesterday. Um, when you look at that, how much pride do you have that you had a tremendous 11-year career and you competed against some of the best in the world and you were considered at one time before injuries, unfortunately, you were considered one of the top two or three point guards. Uh, when you look back and reflect on that, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. It feels like a dream, though, Dan. It, you know, it, it, Everything is like almost a blur. You know, I'm 51 years old and, and I haven't played in 20 years, but the memories are still so fresh in my mind. Uh, I, I can't believe I, I got a chance to play with Hall of Famers like Kevin Garnett and play against him or Gary Payton or, or you know, the, the list goes on. You don't need for us to even go through the list. But just to have that opportunity and to get the respect from those guys that not only did I play against them, but I was consistently playing against them year after year after year. That's where the pride comes in. And to be able to, of course, represent my neighborhood in North, Northeast Portland, that's, that, that's the ultimate. That's, that's something that I can really pass away with knowing that I represent the neighborhood, you know, as best I could. You know, the start of my career kind of coincided with the end of your career. I don't know if you remember the timeline, but you, you were traded to the Hawks. Uh, when I was a young player. And I and if I remember this correctly, you knew in your mind that you were going to be retiring because of knee injuries. But there was a part of me, because I knew you a little bit, not very well from being from the Portland area, that there was a part of me that wanted you just to come with the Hawks for a few months and kind of be that mentor to me uh, that I missed out on. I didn't have a, a true mentor as a, early in my career, which I would have helped how hard of a decision was it for you to retire or was it absolutely you had to because you knew physically you couldn't do it anymore? Cause they're, those are two different ones and they're both hard to take. It is. It's hard to accept. Um, I remember when I got to Atlanta, they pretty much knew my situation. They had all of my x-rays and uh, went there in the summertime and left. I was, I was on a family reunion in Beloit, Wisconsin and found out that I got traded there, you know, it was basically for contract purposes. You know how that thing goes, then. Yeah. Business. And um, they looked at my x-rays and and uh, they sent me out and came back and said, you know, I have good news. And I was sitting there, my hands are sweaty and, you know, I want to play so bad. I'm only 31 years old, you know, so, I, you know, 
I, I feel like I have six or seven more years left in me. Maybe not as a starter. I have a couple of years more as a starter, but I want to be a backup. I want to go chase a ring. I want to ring chase. I want to go to LA and San Antonio, get me a ring and be the third string. I, I didn't care. I just wanted the ring so bad. And um, he said, well, the, the first thing I want to say is um, great career. And um, we, we don't have to amputate your leg. And I looked, I said, who said anything about amputation? And he said, look at this. And he asked me about, you know, playing in the playground over the years. And he was just going through, you know, injuries that we go through. Yeah. Um, just the wear and tear on our body. And he said, you know, there was a contemplation of maybe I have to amputate your leg. And I said, well, if that's the good news, what's the better news? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, the better news is you won't play anymore. Congratulations, you had a great career. And I'm like, okay. He said, but you have to have another surgery. And so I had three surgeries on my left knee with the Vail Colorado and uh, had my last surgery. And I ended up damn rehabbing myself. I had so many surgeries over the years <laughs> that I didn't go to a physical therapist. I had been to him enough that I rehabbed myself. And that's the reason why I can walk today. Well, I had no idea uh, the severity of the knee injury that kind of, you know, foreshadowed the end of your career. You know, we all go through injuries as professional athletes. You learn to just block out the little things and only recognize if it's a big major injury uh, to get looked at. Um, so, so that shows you just how tough you are and you had to be at your size to be as successful. I think one of the other things that, that I've always uh, admired about you is um, – you're from the Portland area. You have a ton of pride and, and love from being from that area. I'm sure when you were done playing, you could have got into coaching because of the way you see the game. You probably could have got into broadcasting. You chose to really pour into your neighborhood that you grew up in, and you've been a tremendous businessman, both real estate-wise and business-wise, uh, ever since you've been done playing. Where did that passion come from, and do you get as much joy in, in a good deal as maybe you did with a winning bucket? Yeah, it's, it's even more now because, uh, you know, um, in my barbershop, I've been having uh, my school from from first grade to the sixth grade. It's called Multitudes of Mercies. And I've had much more of a, a bigger impact on young people than I did when I played. And it's, just, it's, it's something that over the years, you see young people um, go from the second grade to the seventh grade. And um, now they go, oh, Mr. Brandon, you play basketball, you know, and that's the coolest thing ever. That young people, they don't care about that. They just want to learn, you know, and uh, that's been the biggest joy of just seeing young people grow and and, and, and be just a little kid and then become a, a young adult. Um, I just love my neighborhood. I've always done it. Uh, I had my barbershop at 21 years old. And so I've always been doing business uh, at the beginning of my career. And you know how it is, Dan, you know that no matter how long you play the league, if you're fortunate enough to keep living, you're going to be out the league <laughs> way longer than you were when you played. Yes. You know, you have to, you know, accept things of what they are. I, I, you see these gray hairs? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting some too. <laughs> yeah. I haven't always had them, you know what I'm saying? You know, but but the age gives you experience. And um, I'm just glad that I started early to try to be an example to the neighborhood about having a business and and, and keeping things in your community 
uh, and being consistent and not have a, uh, a grand opening and a grand closing, but have a grand opening and have some years so people can generate, you know, you're generating jobs and uh, you're helping the, the neighborhood. You know, Alberta has changed tremendously from the time that we started in 91 to where it is now. We're both from the Portland area. I grew up a huge Blazer fan. I'm sure you did too. Um, last question, with the NBA season kicking off, Damian Lillard has become one of the best players in the NBA. He made that top 75 list. But I also think he does a tremendous job of, of being in the community. I don't live in Portland anymore, but just following it a little bit, he, he does a great job of setting an example for kids. Uh, what does that mean for you as a former player to see someone in, in the forefront of, of attention right now doing things in such a positive way for, for his community and for the Blazers? I love it, man. I love it. You know, it's one thing from being here and you see murals of us with somebody, you know, who painted our picture on somebody's uh, um, uh, wall where they playing basketball, you know what I'm saying? But when you have uh, murals of, of Damian Lillard, who's not from here, who the neighborhood has embraced it. I'm talking about all over the state of Oregon, all in Vancouver, all in McMinnville. Everybody loves Damon Lillard, not just Adidas, but we all love him. And, and, and he's everywhere though. He's in the community, he's visible, he's touchable. Um, I mean, you know, he, he, and I think that he's, he's an ultimate pro. He gets it, you know, he understands about his diet. He understands about making sure he has a haircut. He understands about, you know, doing a proper interview and, 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 and keeping things in perspective. He understands about not being too high when he have a great game, or he understands about, you know, not being too low when he struggles. He has that it factor. And I think not just um, kids here in Portland, girls and boys, but all over the country, they should really um, continue to look at his blueprint of what makes him special and it's his work ethic. And more importantly, as I talked to Chauncey, my boy uh, last weekend, it's his attitude. Absolutely. He does have the it factor. You had the it factor as well when you played. Uh, like I said, to start our, our interview off, you were a guy from the Portland area that I admired, I looked up to. Um, it's been, it was nice to, to compete against you at the old Salvation Army Pro-Ams and the Clark Cal College Open Gyms years ago, but it's even better to get a chance to sit and, and talk face-to-face -face over this Zoom conversation for the last 30 minutes or so. So, Terrell, I appreciate the time. I wish you continued success. Thanks for joining. Oh, man, Dan, man, it's good seeing you, man. Long time, man. Anytime you need me, man, just, just give me a call. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Believe. 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.